Our scripture reading this morning is from the sixth chapter of Daniel, probably the best-known story uh, from, uh, from that book. So listen now to God's word. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done, ever done any wrong before your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. The word of the Lord. 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. For my money, no hymn better embodies the spirit of Advent than O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we sang together at the start of our service this morning. Thank you for that, Amy. Uh, because today, as we've referenced, marks the first Sunday of Advent, this season of holy longing, of patiently waiting, and, and ultimately of hopeful anticipation. And we all hear the talk about getting in the Christmas spirit, but we can't get ahead of ourselves. We first need to get in the Advent spirit. And to do that, we must learn that Advent is perhaps best experienced from a place of exile, a place of waiting, where we find ourselves in circumstances far removed from what we desire for ourselves and far removed from what we know that God desires for his people as well. And, and I think it's safe to say that this year, 2020, more than any other year in our lifetimes, we are in a position to appreciate that sense of Advent longing and waiting. And the past eight, nine months have been a collective exile experience, and not just for the church, but for the world as a whole. I mean, in the midst of this once-in-a-century pandemic, we have been cut off from so much. We have been cut off from many of our loved ones, cut off from many of the settings that have always provided a sense of comfort and normalcy for us, cut off from participation in many of the activities that have always marked our days, weeks, months, and years, ultimately cut off from life as we know that it should be, all while just doing our broken best to hold on to hope rather than slipping into pessimism and despair. And, and for the church in particular, our exile experience this year has been uniquely disorienting as we've been unable to do so much of what traditionally defines what it means for us to be a church. We've been unable to gather as a worshiping community in the ways that we're used to. We've been unable to welcome the new babies that have been born into our church family in the ways that we'd like to. We've been often unable to gather in person for fellowship and discipleship like we're accustomed to, unable to provide hands-on care for each other in the forms that we prefer to, unable to fully celebrate the amazing transformation that has happened in this building as we'd like to. Suffice it to say, we all long for a return to how things used to be, or better yet, to how things should be. And hard as it has been, I think this year puts us into a position to really grasp the almost subversive hope that Advent invites us to hold. Hope that God will come and make things right. Hope for light in the darkness, as Dave said. Because again, Advent speaks to us most powerfully when experienced in places of exile where we're cut off from the things that are meant to bring life. And that backdrop should help us to see why today's text from Daniel 6 is a fitting place to start our reflection on Advent this year. And help make that connection even a bit clearer, let me give you some background on where we are at in Israel's history at this point. Uh, around 587, 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire which meant that they had been taken from their homeland and they had been forced to live life according to the rules of the empire. And the first five chapters of Daniel 
are set in the midst of Babylonian captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar. But eventually, as with all empires, Babylon is defeated. In this case, by the Persians. And and the final two verses of Daniel chapter 5 mark the transition of Judah's exile from Babylonian captivity into Persian captivity. And our reading this morning offers the first account of that exiled life under Persian rule. Now, I think it's safe to say, by all accounts, as Dave mentioned earlier, that the story of Daniel in the lion's den is one of the most famous and familiar in all of Scripture, not just in Daniel's book. I mean, you've got all of the ingredients that are needed for the perfect Sunday school story. You've got the faithful, God-fearing person. You've got the bad guys out to get him. You've got the animals, in this case, ferocious lions. You've got the dangerous predicament of Daniel being thrown into the den. And in the end, you've got God's miraculous rescue. Again, the quintessential Sunday school lesson for the kids. Assuming maybe that you cut the story short before, you know, Daniel's enemies and their wife and kids are devoured by the lions. Uh, but, but all that to say, we would be selling the power of this narrative short if we just wrote it off as being for the kids rather than hearing the clarion call that it offers for all who find themselves in exile, living in a setting where a life of faithfulness is put to the test daily. And so let's take a closer look at Daniel in today's account to understand what faithfulness in the context of empire looks like and to see what Advent hope in the context of exile looks like. Now, in the verses that that came right before today's reading, the first five verses of chapter 6, we learn that King Darius has appointed 120 satraps to rule throughout the Persian Empire. And, And if you're not fully up on your Persian history, a satrap is merely a person who governed one of the provinces in the Persian Empire. And so over those 120 satraps, those provincial governors, Darius placed three administrators to be in charge. And Daniel was one of those three administrators. So yeah, he was kind of a big deal. And in fact, in a narrative sliver that has strong echoes of the Joseph story, Daniel is so effective in his role that despite being an ethnic outsider, King Darius is actually planning to place Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom. And as Christians in America, living in the world's current empire, We need to pay close attention to this because I think it reveals something noteworthy about how Daniel has engaged life in the empire. Generally speaking, I think that as Christians, we're often tempted to go to one of two extremes in how we engage the surrounding culture. We either seek to blend in seamlessly and completely compromise the character of our witness and our faith in order to receive the benefits and comforts that life in the empire offers to those willing to play its game, or we completely reject and remove ourselves from the surrounding culture, having nothing to do with anything secular so as to keep ourselves pure and our faith intact. Daniel, however, goes neither route. Daniel's high position of leadership in the Persian empire is clear evidence that he hasn't just withdrawn from the surrounding culture. After all, you don't get bumped to the top of the king's list of favorites by rejecting all engagement with life in the empire. And you also don't get elevated to such a high position of leadership by merely coasting and and putting in the bare minimum at your work. No, 
Clearly, Daniel has thrown everything he's got into leading well within the context he finds himself. Daniel's life is a tangible example of obedience to the command that God gives his people in exile in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, where God declares, Seek the shalom of the city where I've caused you to be carried away in exile and pray to the Lord for it. For in its shalom, you shall also have shalom. I think this should serve as a reminder for us as Christians today living in the context of empire that our calling is not to remove ourselves from the world, but rather faithful witness calls us to seek the shalom, the well-being, the peace of the place where we find ourselves, just as Daniel did. And yet, on the flip side, it's, it's equally clear that Daniel doesn't simply mimic the lifestyle of the Persians. He doesn't just blend right in. His faithfulness to his God is perhaps the most noteworthy thing about Daniel, being so obvious and observable that the satraps build their manipulative plan on it. They know full well that Daniel wouldn't compromise his faith. They knew Daniel's faithfulness to Yahweh superseded everything else. That despite the passionate and excellent work Daniel did for King Darius, he would throw it all away in a heartbeat if it came at the expense of his devotion to Yahweh. Daniel serves as the perfect example of one who has maintained faithfulness in the midst of empire and advent hope in the midst of exile. Which is why, if, if it hasn't already become clear, this makes a perfect advent text. And I want to draw our attention now to the specific way we see Daniel modeling the subversive hope of advent. Verse 10 reads this, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, again, the decree that all worship for the next month must be directed toward King Darius, when Daniel learned that decree had been published, Daniel went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Now pause there. A couple of things. First, this verse is directly connecting Daniel's awareness of the king's decree with Daniel's action that then knowingly disobeys this decree. I mean, there's no way around the fact that Daniel is engaging in a sort of civil disobedience, or as I'd prefer to call it, faithful resistance. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, we also need to understand that in this culture, privacy looked very different than it does in America today. I mean, dwellings were very close together. Anything done in the home, especially in broad daylight and with the windows open, would be easily observable to the outside public. Daniel knew exactly what might happen here. And so verse 10 then continues, three times a day, Daniel got down, again, in front of the open window, on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Darius' decree did nothing to change Daniel's faithful behavior. Again, Daniel's prayer life was so faithful and so predictable that his accusers knew they could count on it as they laid this trap for him. And, and I know that in some circles, there's a tendency to kind of bristle against being so regimented in our devotional lives. You know, the thought being that such practice can quickly become hollow, meaningless ritual, but, but I would argue the opposite is true. That the more we build disciplines into our daily routine that cultivate our life with God, the stronger and more meaningful our connection with God will become. 
Uh, Dave mentioned last week that his penchant for running has rubbed off on me, what can I say? And uh, this year as a runner, I've tried to do something I've never done before, which is streak running. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, it's not that kind of streaking. Uh, I remain fully clothed as I run, but I have run at least one mile every single day since New Year's Eve of 2019. So my current running streak is at 334 days, and it'll be 335 once I get my run in later this afternoon. And you need to know that while I've been a runner for over a decade, over this past year, my love for running has increased and solidified in ways I never could have imagined. And I I think that it's because each and every day, I know that I'll have a few minutes to get away into the unique, refreshing, uncluttered headspace that running provides me. And and I know that that time will be life-giving. And because of that disciplined commitment to running every single day, not only has my love for running increased, but my body is stronger than it ever has been as I head into my 40s. I'm able to take on challenges now that I never could have in my 20s. And similarly, Daniel's routine of praying three times every single day without fail must have strengthened his spirit and deepened his love for and connection with God in ways that allowed him to remain steadfast and to faithfully resist when necessary. We can also choose to build habits into our lives that will sustain us and more than that, strengthen us to live with a resolve that does not waver or compromise. And I'd argue that there's no greater habit to build into our daily rhythms than prayer. I think Daniel would agree. And so in that vein, the question that I'd like to reflect on with the brief time that we have remaining this morning is this. Is those living in exile today within the context of the world's current dominating empire, what might faithful resistance look like on our part? And and the good news is that there are already plenty of examples of faithful resistance in this American empire, if we'd only look. Uh, I was having a conversation just a few weeks back with a dear pastor friend of mine, and he shared with me his fear that one day he could see himself being imprisoned for preaching the truth of Scripture. And, and while I agreed with him that that certainly could become a reality someday, though I, I think we're still far away off from that, I reminded him that if someday he or I are imprisoned for being faithful to what we believe God calls us to, we'd actually be late to the party. I mean, that's nothing new, even and especially here in America. The privilege of being white in America perhaps shields me from that, but our Christian brothers and sisters of color here in America have experienced a long history of imprisonment and persecution for the sake of their faithful witness as they stood and continue to stand for the truth of God's justice. The civil rights movement and the broader ongoing work of pursuing racial justice here in America stands as just one obvious example. There's many, but it stands as one obvious example where black clergy and black Christians in particular have demonstrated faithful resistance in the midst of empire. I mean, talk about a modern day example of an exiled people of God steadfastly embodying what faithfulness looks like. And as a white Christian and pastor in America, I have so much to learn from their faithful witness. And we collectively have much work to do in joining in that work of faithful resistance. And on that note, um, back back at the end of May, uh, when when George Floyd was murdered, 
both Dave and I publicly committed to y'all that we would, as a church, take seriously the part that we must play in pursuing racial justice in our community and in our country. We believed then and believe now that faithfulness to our God demands it. This is part of what faithful resistance in the spirit of Daniel looks like today. And so we've been taking some small but important steps to lean into this as a church. Things like the White Awake discussion group this summer and our, our life groups reading and reflecting and discussing John Perkins' book, One Blood, this fall. But there's other important work that's, that's been happening behind the scenes that I want to share with you this morning. Work aimed at, at baking this into our very DNA as a church and helping us discern how to meaningfully engage in the work of racial justice and reconciliation for the long haul. Uh, you see, with, with the full support and blessing of our church's leadership, I have been leading along with Dave a racial justice and reconciliation task force consisting of eight other members from our Res Church family. Uh, we started meeting as a team back in September, and we will continue working together until the end of summer 2021. And, and I want to just share with you the specific charge that has been given to this task force, and that is to recommend to the Resurrection Minneapolis leadership team a roadmap for a long-term commitment to racial justice and reconciliation establishing a foundation for sustainable action and a short-term plan to launch the journey. In other words, we, we don't want our commitment to this work to be a flash in the pan. Instead, this task force will be bringing recommendation to our church's leadership regarding how we can engage in the work of racial justice and reconciliation for the long haul. And uh, in the church email, that you'll get this week. We'll have that charge in there again for you to view, along with a list of the other folks who are part of this team as they serve as representatives of the greater res community. And I, I know that every person on the team would gladly represent your thoughts to the task force as we do our work. So please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us if you have thoughts you'd like brought to that team. But friends, please, please pray for us as a task force. We need wisdom. We need courage. And pray for us as a church community. We have a lot of work to do, and we're just getting started to go back to a well-worn analogy that resonates with me as a runner. We need to view our engagement with the work of racial justice and reconciliation as a marathon and not a sprint. But again, we, we do all of this work in line with Daniel's example of faithfulness in the midst of empire, of seeking the shalom of our city, and I pray that we would see how this work is consistent with and flows from the spirit of Advent hope in a place of exile. And so, brothers and sisters, let us conclude by returning to where we started this morning. Advent is a season where we name our longing, where we admit that everything's not okay, where we feel the pain and brokenness and darkness of life, often acutely and yet where we direct that longing for better days towards our loving God and where we hold hopeful anticipation for the day when Jesus returns to fulfill the promise guaranteed by his death and resurrection, the promise of new creation of all things being made new. And so may that hope carry us through this especially challenging Advent season and may it foster in us a faithfulness that points the world around us to that same hope. In Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithful presence with us in the midst of, of exile, of darkness, of, of pain, of uncertainty, of all of the things that we hold with us, uh, especially in this year and in this season of life. God is your people. I pray that you would form in us the same character that Daniel had, a character that holds fast and faithfully to our pursuit of you, that, that displays uh, unwavering character and unwavering uh, support for your kingdom work in this world. And God, I pray that we would do it in a way that brings about your shalom in our world, in our communities. Jesus, we do all of this in and for your name. Amen.